Welcome to today's podcast. This is Sean Weiss, a.k.a. The Compliance Guy. I hope you all are doing well on this 5th of June, 2021. Today we're going to focus on conducting a fraud investigation. And really what I want to talk about is using a common sense approach. You know, the only alternative to risk management is crisis management. And crisis management is much, much more expensive and time-consuming. And embarrassing, to be honest, right? So I think the most important thing to understand is that auditing impacts your compliance. And we have to start by building a foundation and talking about compliance before we can actually get into a discussion about how to conduct a fraud investigation. And I think it's important to understand that what we learn from our audits needs to translate into compliance because policies and procedures are derived from audits or in theory, they should be. So if we use out of the box policies and procedures without modification, the question becomes, are we really compliant? And if we're not working continuously to have a living, breathing document and we're not updating our PMPs based on our audit findings. The question again becomes, do we have policies and procedures? You know, one of the things that I often talk about is the fact that as a result of audit findings, providers, as always, can expect to see increased efforts by the federal government to prevent, identify, and punish healthcare fraud. CMS has created action plans. And these action plans aren't anything new. They've been around. And they're pretty simple. It's to increase the number of prepayment reviews, which we've absolutely seen in 2021 already. To increase the number of postpayment reviews of medical necessity and medical record documentation supporting claims. Overpayment recoveries, meaning clawbacks. Providers being identified by the audit as submitting improper claims, then being targeted for more extensive investigations. We've seen increased review of evaluation and management claims. Again, the 2021 EM guidelines have created a lot of noise in the industry, and they've created a lot of opportunity for payers to go and investigate, to go and audit, and to assess overpayments for areas that are highly subjective. We could talk about evaluation and management services all day long, but I think you need to recognize the fact that if you just look at the 2010 study from the Office of the Inspector General, it showed that more than 55% of levels selected by providers were actually incorrect. CMS is, without a doubt, demanding more documentation from providers who submit claims. You know, if providers would recognize the fact that it's, it's, not, an overco it's not an overcode, it's a lack of documentation. It's under-documenting their services. It's hard to argue a lack of medical necessity 
when you have a non-clinical auditor trying to argue clinical judgment or medical necessity from a clinician's perspective. And finally, as part of CMS's action plan, there's increased security measures to prevent submission of claims from improper providers. So one of the things that becomes absolutely critical for any medical practice or health system, hospital, is to create a monitoring and auditing process. The organization must evaluate the effectiveness of its compliance program on an ongoing basis by monitoring compliance with its standards and procedures and by reviewing its standards and procedures to ensure they are actually current and complete. Again, a review of pending claims not yet submitted can actually establish a benchmark that will be used in ongoing reviews to chart the success of the organization's compliance efforts. You know, counsel often recommend this be conducted under attorney-client privilege for good reason, because we want to preserve privilege. We want to preserve the work product doctrine, and we want to minimize the amount of information that can be turned over during a subpoena or during a discovery process. And it gives grounds for arguments that certain documents are protected under the privilege. So before you go out and start performing these probe audits or these statistically valid random samples or non-probability samples or whatever type of audit that you're doing, and you start writing reports about there's a problem with this, a problem with that, non-compliance here, non-compliance there. Once you put that stuff into writing and you send it around the organization for review, if it's not been done under the direction of an attorney, that stuff is open to subpoena. So when we're talking about auditing and monitoring and trending, you have to look at the sentencing guidelines and, and the USSC Advisory Committee recommendations. And there's two components. The first one is that traditional auditing and monitoring to review or assess adherence to applicable laws, regulations, and policies are critical. And second, that there's a requirement that periodic evaluation of the effectiveness of the compliance program itself takes place. That's the only way you can ensure an effective compliance program. That's the only way that you can demonstrate a culture of compliance across your organization. Again, auditing and monitoring efforts should be tied to, really driven by, results of the risk assessment process. Again, activities with the greatest risk should normally be an organization's highest audit priority. So when we start talking about fraud and abuse, it becomes important to identify and define certain terms. Everybody loves to throw the term fraud around when it comes to a claim that maybe was processed incorrectly or, you know, upon adjudication, you know, they found problems with it. So there's two things to keep in mind, right? Claims could be considered erroneous. And what is an erroneous claim? Well, these are claims that are submitted to the carriers with 
inadvertence or negligence. And these are typically handled through refunds. And you do these refunds once a detection is made. So again, providers are not subject to civil penalties, interest, or jail when you make your voluntary refunds. Now, fraudulent claims submitted are done so intentionally or with reckless disregard for the intent of inappropriate monetary gain. And in these situations, this is where providers are actually subject to civil penalties and potentially jail. Look, the OIG acknowledges that full implementation of all components of a compliance program may not be feasible for all practices. So practices should adopt those components which are likely to provide an, identifi an identifiable benefit based on previous history of specific billing problems or compliance issues. Again, auditing and monitoring of the plan must be one of the steps adopted by your organization. And remember, there's seven steps to an OIG compliance program. And one of those seven steps is the auditing and monitoring of your compliance program. Again, this is critical during an investigation where fraud is being alleged. Again, it's always advised that providers participate in other compliance programs, such as the hospitals or other settings in which the physicians actually render services. So when we start talking about structuring your investigation policies, we do this by establishing a clear policy for logging, conducting, and documenting investigations for the organization. Obviously, a few things come to mind, right? We want to minimize delays associated with determining how to handle investigations. We need to be able to promote thorough and uniform investigations in our policies. And we want to ensure that all investigation steps, findings, and corrective action plans are appropriately documented. Because again, this promotes root cause analysis and corrective actions that reduce risk of future violations. It also reduces risk relayer, um, which, you know, when we talk about a relayer, this is what we talk about with third parties filing a KITAM suit or a whistleblower claim. And again, you know, having a structured policy for your investigations ensures that the organization will proactively self-disclose when appropriate, if necessary through the self-disclosure protocol with the Office of the Inspector General or through a voluntary refund program. And again, we when we start to recognize that there are significant issues within the organization and the disclosures are going to wind up being through the self-disclosure protocol, because that increases the risks associated with penalties and or fines, we want to make certain that we do everything we can to earn what's referred to as cooperation credit. This was actually laid out in the Yates memo in 2015, and it's also what was identified in the Philippe memos. 
in order to be able to minimize penalties for the organization. One of the things that we've seen a big push for over the recent years is what's referred to as individual accountability. And again, we started talking about cooperation credit under the Yates memo. And this is a six-pronged memorandum regarding individual accountability for corporate wrongdoing. Again, as I said, it was issued by Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates to federal prosecutors uh, back in September of 2015, which actually changed the DOJ's policy on the resolution of criminal and civil cases. So to be eligible for any cooperation credit, corporations have to provide the department all relevant facts about the individuals involved in corporate misconduct. Remember, failure to conduct a robust investigation may disqualify the company for credit. Both criminal and civil corporate investigations have to focus on individuals from the inception of the investigation. Again, criminal and civil attorneys handling corporate investigations should be in routine communication with each other. And absent extraordinary circumstances, no corporate resolution will provide protection from criminal or civil liability for any individuals. Because corporate cases should not be resolved without a clear plan to resolve related individual cases before the statute of limitations expires and declinations as to individuals in such cases have to be memorialized. Again, civil attorneys have to consistently focus on individuals as well as the company and evaluate whether to bring suit against an individual based on considerations beyond that individual's ability to pay. So when we talk about going back to our our policy, right, we want to create an effective policy. And, and, and some of the elements for doing that include looking at the relevant data, right? You got to look at your sources. You got to look at all involved persons, locations, timeframes, anything that helps to uncover the root cause of the problem. It's like I always say, leave no stone unturned. Consider subject matter codes to aid data analytics, and then create a process for determining whether to refer to human resources or to the Department of Compliance. But do that with a documentation of that referral. We want to be thorough. We want to dot our I's, cross our T's. We always want to have a paper trail. There needs to be an assessment of risk level and credentials of who the lead investigator is. There needs to be a process for determining whether to investigate under privilege and, if so, whether to refer to outside counsel, even if you have general counsel. Certain things may not be considered privileged under a general counsel, which is oftentimes why you see outside counsel being brought in by internal counsel. Because you have to determine the need for document holds and preservation tactics. You've got to be able to identify and obtain any governing policies or SOPs, standard operating procedures. 
Make sure that you interview your witnesses and make sure that you're not lobbing softballs. Ask tough, probing questions. It's okay if people feel uncomfortable. Because when somebody feels like you know they're not being candid with you, you can start to see by the way they squirm in their seat, by the way that they start to fidget with their hair, with their pen or pencil, or with, you know, just not being able to sit still in their seat. And, and that oftentimes leads to them finally saying, all right, look, just between you and me, I don't really want to go down this road, but here's what happened. Make sure you document your review process and all the steps that were taken in your investigation. Again, be smart. Document your review and interview summaries that then get added to what we call an investigation tracker. Again, it's all about a paper trail when you're a lead investigator. Keep in mind that there needs to be a separation of privileged or work product materials. Because findings of fact or basis for concluding a report is substantiated or unsubstantiated by you know, the, the information that you're able to gather. There needs to be a clear, concise process for appropriate input, right? Non-lawyers should not make determinations as to whether laws were violated. Don't get caught up in practicing law without a license. And again, make certain that you document your root cause analysis and any corrective action plan where a report is substantiated. And we'll talk about corrective action plans in just a little while. Again, you got to make a determination between whether you're going to do a voluntary refund or whether you're going to do a self-disclosure protocol with respect to reporting and refunding. So make sure that your policy is crystal clear with respect to overpayments once they're confirmed and they've been identified. Again, we want to make certain that we lay out a process for remediation of violations. And we want to have a process to address any root cause of a violation and safeguards against future violations. And then finally, again, make certain that there is a clear, concise process for tracking all the way through completion of your investigation. So we started talking about corrective action plans, right? CAPS. And these are critical components to sending a clear message that we as an organization are absolutely committed to doing the right thing. It shows our compliance plan is a living, breathing document that's ever adjusting and growing with the organization. Again, most compliance professionals want to self-disclose when an error is identified, but self-disclosure is not always warranted. And I've talked about this in prior podcasts. Oftentimes, things we make mistakes on don't lead to undeserved remunerations. They could simply be a breakdown in process that needs to be better defined or clarified. So before a decision is made about self-disclosure, You've got to speak with your healthcare attorney to determine the best course of action. However, regardless of what the final determination is, 
you still need to develop a corrective action plan. And there are five basic aspects to a cap. The first is to identify the issue or problem and to clearly define it. You've got to identify the potential problem and provide a lay explanation of the problem. Let's take cloning of medical records as an example. Again, we want to look at the root cause. So we want to identify what led to the potential problem, such as the ease of cutting and pasting or carrying forward information from prior encounters within an EMR without any substantive change to it. Then we need to identify the action steps. We've got to be able to identify the steps taken to correct or reverse the potential problem. So we want to talk about training and education for all providers documenting within the EMR system. Document improvement benchmarks and timeframes for getting there. How will you monitor the situation going forward to ensure compliance? For example, is there going to be a re-review of provider documentation within 30 days after training and education? And then finally, the last step of a cap is the certification. The compliance officer or responsible party for ensuring compliance has to sign off on that cap. So the question becomes, who should actually conduct the investigation? Well, it depends. If it's truly something that's tied to compliance, then it should be conducted by the Office of Compliance. If it's something that's more of a human resources issue, then it gets conducted by human resources, right? You have to look at the considerations. You know, what is or are the allegations? You know, should it be an independent review that's done? Or is it under direction of counsel? Well, again, the question becomes, what's the likelihood of a QTAM case? We definitely want to make certain that the individuals conducting the investigations, if it's going to be done in-house, are either managers with compliance background or with human resources oversight. Again, depending on what is or are the allegations. Who's actually implicated? And again, do we use in-house counsel or do we go outside for counsel? Again, the questions become, is there going to be government reporting involved? Are we looking for cooperation uh, credit? And what's the potential for litigation? The bottom line is, if a violation exists, you've got to investigate it. Remember, it's not the crime that gets people in trouble. It's the cover-up, because that's when obstruction occurs. So there's a couple of things that you need to understand about warnings or disclosures, right? One of them is called Upjohn. And in Upjohn versus the United States, the Supreme Court held that the attorney-client privilege applies to a corporation's attorney's communications with corporate employees. When a communication is made to the corporation's counsel that is acting in their capacity as counsel and not as business consultants, as an example. Again, 
when it's at the direction of corporate management for the purpose of securing legal advice from counsel or concerning a subject within the scope of employment. And when the employee knows that the purpose of the communication is for the corporation to procure legal advice. And then you also have what's called a czar. So if the company knows that it will or is likely to cooperate with the government, counsel should issue what's called a czar warning to all employees that if they make false statements during internal interviews, they actually could be charged with obstruction of justice. There was a press release by the Department of Justice about former computer associate executives who were indicted on securities, fraud, and obstruction charges back in 2004. And you could look it up on Google. Um, there's also the United States versus Singleton. Again, um, this was a uh, case in Texas back in 2006. And remember, you know, czar warnings are not required by law, but they are often given out of a sense of fairness to witnesses. Now, there are two downsides, though, to giving this warning. The first is it may discourage individuals from agreeing to be interviewed. And second, the warning may be perceived by the government as inviting employees not to cooperate with the investigation and potentially jeopardize the company's chance of getting cooperation credit. So be measured in these determinations of issuing either an Upjohn or Czar warning. Now, legal representation is a big topic for investigations. Because employees who are the center of the investigation should be afforded the ability to have their own counsel. Typically, corporate counsel does not represent the employee or employees in, an out, in, in a case. And this actually gets further defined in Yates. It says the company may wish to cover the expenses of counsel for the employee. Now, you can do that. Now, if an employee says, I want my legal counsel present before I agree to any interview then you have to postpone the investigation because if you don't, you're violating their rights. So don't try to force an investigation. Don't try to take a heavy hand with this. If somebody says, I'm not talking until I have my lawyer present, then that's the end of the investigation. Again, it's critical to remind employees about being forthcoming and honest with their information, regardless of who it may implicate. Because failure to cooperate may actually lead to disciplinary actions. Remember, under a grand jury subpoena, an employee has a duty to assist a company's counsel with investigation and defense of corporations' business affairs. So, speaking of attorneys getting involved in the cases, if an investigation is done under the attorney's direction, Again, 
there will be notification of all client communications being done under the attorney-client privilege. If you're going to quote a witness, know what the pros and cons are and be mindful of your comments. Don't try to paraphrase. If you're going to give a direct quote, get it right and be thorough with what that quote was from the individual who made it. Again, if you have to segregate your report, consider utilizing separate sections for any mental impressions and facts to keep conjecture and facts separate. And make sure you include in your report any attorney work product disclaimer. As an example, you could say something to the effect of, this summary and analysis of the discussion with the individual occurred on whatever the date is and is neither a verbatim nor a chronological transcription. This document memorializes my thought processes and analyses, including factual interpretations, mental impressions, and the choice of which questions and answers were critical in reaching an opinion. The summary contains privileged communications and constitutes an attorney work product created based on the fact of potential litigation. This summary has not been shared with, reviewed by, or approved by any witness. And don't forget, maintain all notes and documents in a safe place to eliminate the risk of loss, theft, or manipulation. So we talked about auditing and monitoring prior. Remember, this step is crucial to the success of a compliance program because this process not only ensures the practice's standards and procedures are current, but also whether they are accurate and if the compliance program is working. The bottom line is we want to ensure individuals are carrying out their responsibilities as put forth in our compliance program. So when we're monitoring our compliance risks, we have to ask a few questions, right? What regulatory guidance actually exists? Have we built an appropriate team to take accountability? Did we do a good job of risk identification and mitigation? How did we assess and document the problems? And what mechanisms were put in place for prioritizing and then reporting on our findings? Remember, we want to continue to have ongoing monitoring in order to be able, able to identify new or additional risks. It all comes down to the regulatory guidance, right? Section 8B 2.1 talks about the effective compliance and ethics programs. And, and what it says is to have an effective compliance and ethics program for the purposes of subsection F of sub section 8C 2.5, which talks about the culpability score, and subsection B1 of section 8D 1.4, which is recommended conditions of probation for organizations, an organization shall, 
One, exercise due diligence in, uh, to prevent and detect criminal conduct. And second, otherwise promote an organizational culture that encourages ethical conduct and a commitment to compliance with the law. Because such compliance and ethics programs shall be reasonably designed, implemented, and enforced so that the program is generally effective in preventing and detecting criminal conduct. Remember, the failure to prevent or detect the instant offense does, n does not necessarily mean that the program is not generally effective in preventing and detecting criminal conduct. Remember that due diligence and the promotion of an organizational culture that encourages ethical conduct and a commitment to compliance with the law within the meaning of the subsection, at a minimum, requires that the organization shall establish standards and procedures to prevent and detect criminal conduct, period. Remember, corporations have a responsibility to corporate compliance. And there's a couple of structural questions that need to be asked. The first of those is, does the compliance program address the significant risks of the organization? And then how were those risks determined and how are new compliance risks identified and incorporated into the program? Remember, healthcare organizations operate in a highly regulated industry and must address various standards, government program conditions of participation and reimbursement, and other standards applicable to corporate citizens, irrespective of the industry. And a comprehensive ongoing process of compliance risk assessments is important to the board of directors awareness of new challenges to the organization and its evaluation of management's priorities and program resource allocations. I mean, this information comes directly from the Office of Inspector General fraud documents on compliance guidance. It's basically the Corporate Responsibility Resources Guide is, is I think, what they call it. Again, when you're identifying potential risks, make certain directives come from senior management to implement a risk monitoring process and ensure legal counsel is engaged. Don't forget to conduct a gap analysis to identify potential risks. Start with your risk management team. Interview your legal department and interview key members of the organization. Because you want to establish ongoing risk monitoring that, occur, that occurs quarterly, semi-annually, or annually. Again, this needs to be tied to the initial recommendation on a risk assessment. Establish a point person in the compliance department to ensure new assessments and updated templates are completed in a timely manner. And remember that the timing of future monitoring for each risk is based on new assessment findings. Don't forget to use existing audit functions to assess issues where the risk potential is uncertain. Add the review of a particular department and process to their in 
their annual audit plan and do a formal audit of issues where compliance with state or federal regulations may be in question. Remember that compliance risks can be identified at any point during the course of managing a compliance program. And don't be afraid to solicit new risks annually from department leaders. Remember, people become familiar with roles and processes over time. And as new risks are identified and prioritized, add them to the ongoing monitoring process. So we'll finish out today's podcast by talking about some best practices for handling your self-disclosures if it comes to that. If that's what your fraud investigation determines is the logical step to follow. Again, create policies to ensure compliance with various regulations and requirements for reporting. Define, identify, your overpayments to occur following investigations and validation that the overpayment was received and determination of the amount of the overpayment. Again, develop timely investigations and audit plans that avoid needing to report and refund when possible. Investigate all of the root causes of overpayments to determine if they arose from intentional misconduct or reckless disregard of applicable law. Really, we want to do that, you know, ideally before quantifying our damages. Make sure you limit the investigation and audit scope to arrangements or claims where there is reason to believe that violations may have occurred and look to turn over every stone looking for issues. Again, consider the pros and cons of reporting under a protocol or disclosing to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Remember, make sure to consult with your legal counsel before making a determination. And finally, ensure that disclosures satisfy all requirements and anticipate all government concerns. All right, so this brings us to the end of conducting a fraud investigation. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. My name is Sean Weiss, the Compliance Guy, and I look forward to seeing you on a future program.